David Arquette, the world, I, I'm going to say it again because I don't believe it. David Arquette is the world champion. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. We ain't here to play. Hold one. Andre. Who are you to, to, to doubt El Dandy? Because this guy's a serious professional. I will take your mother home and make a woman out of her, kid. You keep your mouth shut. I'm talking to you, kid. I'm going to make your mother go, woo, woo, woo. All two. Armbar. Oh, what is he oh doing? Oh, my God. Is he the third man? He's the third man. What oh. the hell is going on here? Hulk Hogan has betrayed WCW. That's why I made this match with Judy Bagwell on a pole match. Pole three. The moss-covered, three-handled family grenadzo. Well, I don't know why you don't want to cut my hair, Eddie. You won! This place only left when he picks him up. He's got him up! Oh, yeah! One, two, three! That's one of those crazy From time to time, I'm going to pop in when you least expect it. Welcome everyone, it is WCW Gold, all part of the Wrestling Soft Bottle Network and uh, it has been uh, 25 years of the NWO, if you can believe it. New, 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 new world order. Hup, hup, hup. What is he oh doing? my God, is he the third man? He's the third man. What oh. the hell is going on here? Hulk Hogan has betrayed WCW. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Yes, that's right. 25 years of the New World Order. For so long, we've been too sweeting and uh, doing things for life. And I thought uh, if I was going to get uh, anyone on to have a bit of a 25th anniversary retrospective, it'd have to be none other than Wrestling Journal, Adam Masters. Hello and welcome. Hello, good brother. It is a pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, I was going to say, um, while we look at our cameras, we can try to two-sweet each other. Uh, maybe if my hand doesn't get disappeared in the background there. Um, my, my, my hand was cramping. It's been cramping up all morning knowing <laughs> that we were going to be doing this. So I'll just bring that bad boy yeah, in right there. There, like there that. too sweet. <laughs> 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 oh, but uh, 25 years, I mean, officially kicking off, I think, in the summer over in the States of 1996, Bash of the Beach. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll get into it sort of start before that with the outsiders making their way to WCW, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. But... 25 years, I think, yeah, how am I? I'm 32 this year. And when you go around wrestling conventions or events or wherever, I mean, so a bit less at the moment with the whole COVID restrictions. Uh, I think we've had the WWE show postponed twice already, which is hopefully going to be in our shores uh, around this time next year. But you always see NWO T-shirts. Uh, are you surprised the longevity of uh, the NWO brand? Look, not at all, to be completely honest with you. When I, when you look at the the numbers that the NWO brought in for WCW and the level that it took pro wrestling to in the late 90s, um, it, it's hardly surprising to me whatsoever. I mean, I, I know I look back on that era so fondly. Um, and when I think of the Monday Night Wars, I think of the NWO when it comes to WCW, you know. Um, this T-shirt that I'm wearing is is an NWO black and white shirt. It is, it is as iconic as the Austin 316 shirt. 
shirt. When I think of pro wrestling merchandise, I think of the, the Austin 316 and I think of the NWO shirt. Um, for fans like you and I, you know, I turned 30 this year. Um, we grew up, you know, during some of the, the golden the golden times of pro wrestling during the Attitude Era and the Monday Night Wars. You know, it's hard to forget those times. And I suppose being able to wear the merchandise and seeing the fans too sweeting at live events live events i went to wrestlemania in 2018 there were nwo shirts all over new orleans um it doesn't surprise me at all people like to look back at uh, on, on the, the most fond times of their, their childhood and um wearing the shirts throwing up the two suite um and talking about you know situations like this 25 years are a way to um, respect that and acknowledge it and, and really take yourself back to um a really a fantastic time in pro wrestling let's be honest Absolutely. And I guess the impact, um, you could say WCW slash NWO had at that time. I mean, I'm of the opinion and you could say that I'm probably shilling for uh, Eric Bischoff in 83 weeks uh, here, but I feel without the NWO or at least the push to go to Monday night with Nitro and have, I guess, quote unquote, more real storylines, I feel that you wouldn't have had the attitude error from uh, Vince McMahon. He was really pushed to kind of, I guess, uh, break the glass in case of emergency type of stuff with, you know, having the likes of uh, Vince Russo and more, I guess, risque content. I feel that was really pushed from the NWO and WCW. And, I mean, arguably towards the end, the WWF were able to do what WCW did, but obviously did it much better. Yeah, look, WCW forced the WWF's hand at the time. I mean, Vince McMahon's product was... Doink the Clown and um, the Goon, you know what I mean? And we had Tutti Fruity and all that sort of thing going on. I mean, it was really cotton candy, bubblegum entertainment designed for children. And I think Eric Bischoff made a really smart decision in trying to uh, appeal to a slightly older demographic, maybe a demographic that wanted something that was not quite so cartoonish and quite so Disney in a way. Um, he was able to capture that sort of, you know, teenage young male demographic, you know, and, and really attract that college student demographic as well that was quite hungry for something that was, you know, more appropriate for the time. I mean, you're talking the late 90s, you're talking sort of Jerry Springer-esque, um, Howard Stern, South Park, you know, it was a rebellious counterculture time in, in, in America and the world. And I think by bringing in the NWO with a sort of balls to the wall, take no prisoners, screw you, I do what I want kind of attitude was the right fit. And full credit to Eric Bischoff for doing it. Now, it's a, a long debate, and I guess it goes without saying that you're definitely an NWO guy, but obviously uh, another great stable uh, to come from the Attitude Era is DX, D-Generation X, again, sort of really pushed from, I guess, WCW and the NWO. Are you a DX guy or an NWO guy? Oh, that's a tough question. Like that's that's <laughs> that's really really tough. Um, I mean, look, I I love the NWO, and the NWO is for life. I mean, I have to be honest with you. DX is a little bit soured for me because I look at what they did with DX and the rehashes and the recookings there. You know, I, I know I know the NWO is not um you know pure as the driven snow when it comes to that <laughs> NWO two thousand. But um, when it comes to DX, look it. It was fantastic. I enjoyed the original DX. I enjoyed uh, Rick Rude, China, Hunter, Trips. But in terms of overall impact and legacy, I mean, it's hard to go past the NWO, isn't it? 
It is. And I mean, uh, we're talking about, uh, I guess, DX kind of spawned out of the Attitude Era from WCW and NWO. What about some other parodies and spin-offs that came from the NWO? The Blue World Order of ECW, Big Stevie Cool, uh, the Blue Guy, uh, Hollywood Nova there. They uh, they got away with that legally because it's a parody. But even internally with WCW, we had the LWO, Latino World Order, with uh, Eddie Guerrero, who arguably obviously went on to bigger and better things with WWE, but I'm a WCW guy, so I absolutely love this incarnation of Eddie Guerrero with the LWO and sort of the, the Chris Jericho character of WCW back then, so I was all for that. Uh, the NWO Wolfpacker, which we'll obviously touch more on shortly. Uh, my favourite, the NWO B team, Stevie Ray, Vincent and Horace Hogan. It's a shame that they were not inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, earlier this year with the NWO. Uh, NWO Real missed opportunity there. Absolutely. And the NWO Japan with the likes of, uh, I think it was uh, Great Muda and there was heaps of guys there in NWO Japan. And a lot of the B-team guys were actually more popular in Japan than even in their uh, home country of the States. But uh, if we look more recently, the Bullet Club, which is clearly just, a, I wouldn't say a ripoff, but it's definitely very much inspired by the NWO. Yeah, look, I, I think of it as a, a quite a um, quite a decent tribute, and I don't mean that as a as a knock on on uh, Prince Devitt or Carl Anderson or any of the other blokes involved there. I mean, I, I I see it as a bunch of guys who are incredibly talented, who knew how to work the market in Japan, um, made that into something massive, but obviously were so inspired by Kev and Scott and, and Hulk um, and the click more broadly, let's be honest. So, um, look, I, I think it's fantastic. I, I, I look at Bullet Club, um, you know, let's talk about it sort of, maybe pre-AEW and, you know, that sort of the, the whole, um, the elite thing becoming its its own thing. Um, I, I think the Bullet Club was one of the biggest things of maybe the last 10 or so years in pro wrestling. Um, and it's a formula that works, you know what I mean? You have a bunch of guys who uh, are counterculture, you know what I mean? That, that their, their actions are, are rooted in heel activity, but they're so cool that you can't help but like them um it's the same formula re reheated and we say this in pro wrestling all the time i think jim Cornette said it was something like seven or eight years has to pass and then you can recook that idea you can repurpose the, the fundamentals in the same way and you can run the same storylines but just with slight tweaks and i think the bullet club is a good example of taking that formula of a, a heelish stable um with an incredibly marketable logo very simple design you know like white text on a on a on a black background and turning that into one of the biggest things that wrestling's seen and i think the bullet club is or has been the the nwo of, of a new generation it's fantastic Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, Four Horsemen um, fans out there, which, you know, obviously love Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and uh, I guess that original core of the Four Horsemen. But I guess I think Kevin Nash said in uh, several shooting interviews, but, and you touched on it there, the big difference between the NWO and the Four Horsemen was, well, the NWO was cool. Not that I guess you can say that uh, Ric Flair wasn't cool, but it was a different type of cool. And I think the Four Horsemen were, were steeped in, in in tradition in terms of wrestling. And, I mean, the NWO were so counter to everything, right? Um, they weren't the they weren't booked in the traditional wrestling uh, style, you know. While while the horsemen were cool, and you had the the flashiness and the and the camaraderie of of the of the members, you know what I mean. The NWO was was flashy, but in a grungy way, you know what I mean. It was. It was the T-shirts. It was the throwing up of the two sweet. It was the riding in the limousines. It was spray painting people. You know, it was um, 
it was sort of saying to to you know with a wink to the audience we don't do what the promoter wants necessarily um and i think that's what differentiated the nwo from groups like you know the horsemen or, or any that were managed by jim Cornette. you know what i mean this wasn't a territorial style stable this was a, a bunch of rebels who did what they want when they wanted and screw you if you didn't like it and one thing, I mean, as we go over the good, the bad and the ugly with the NWO, and there's a lot of that uh, for sure, but one thing that uh, we almost, we kind of did see, but it uh, was almost uh, a burden, uh, the extra show of WCW Thunder. Um, I know Eric Bischoff has gone on record many times saying that he never wanted to do Thunder. It was basically given to him and they had to pay for it. Um, but the initial idea being that uh, NWO, their brand was going to be, uh, NWO Nitro and then WCW Thunder. So I guess that's a really early concept of what WWE would adopt after the acquisition of WCW having the Raw brand, the SmackDown brand. We could have saw that in the mid to late 90s. Um, didn't really get to see that in its entirety. Obviously, I think there would be a lot of politics and maybe people who didn't want to work on a Thursday or Tuesday or whenever it was recorded uh, as opposed to the A-show, which was clearly Nitro. But uh, we could have seen brands uh, that early on, which would have just been such a foreign concept at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I mean, I think the introduction of Thunder was clearly uh, a broader part of um, the head offices. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the ownership structure here. I'm not talking about WCW, but it was clearly a, a part of the, the broader strategy to expand WCW's footprint. Um, I think the WWF managed to um, bring that sort of B show in successfully in, in 1999 with SmackDown. Now, I'm not sure if I can recall the, the the year or the time that Thunder actually came in. You might know off the top of your head, but I, I do think that the the sold out pay per view. Um, we might touch on this a little bit more, but the NWO sold out pay per view where they had their own pay per view with their own branding was kind of a, a way of sampling that off cut um, you know brand that was not under the WCW banner. Um, now, fans have a sort of mixed view. Um, I've heard quite a few negative um, opinions on the on the card on that sold-out pay-per-view, and I think maybe that was a bit of an omen for how, um, you know, sort of a second show would would go. I think, um, well, maybe they were looking, and I think Scott Hall's mentioned this in a bunch of shoots um, that he's had uh, since, um, you know, sort of stepping away from active wrestling. He said that, um, you know, they were always looking to have NWO be its own brand. And I think once, um, you know, sold out didn't kind of go the way that they were hoping Thunder, um, you know, was able to be there under the WCW banner. Look, was it a great show? No, I don't think so. Um, did it offer other talent who may not have had an opportunity on, on Nitro to get some, some ring time and, you know, get on, on TV? Yeah, it did. So I don't know, maybe it paid for itself in that regard, but was it ever going to be the destination program for WCW? Nah, it was never going to be that. And obviously the amount of numbers uh, that were being added to the uh, NWO, obviously you go away from the core trio being Hogan, Hall and Nash uh, to a lot of other uh, members, whether that be internationally in Japan and B-teams and split-offs, but uh, Adam, the biggest criticism, obviously, NWO, they had too many members towards the end there, but do you know the exact figure, at least according to uh, Wikipedia, how many members in total over the NWO's existence? Do you, would you know what that number would be? I, I remember reading it several years ago because I, I was up on a very late night um, 
uh, deep dive into all of the people that are involved in the NWO. Look, I'm not even going to take a stab at it because I think it gives me a headache and it might actually irate me to put a number out there of my own guessing. Could you could you enlighten myself and the, and the listeners to how many that actually wound up becoming? Well, this is all according to Wikipedia, which is gospel. Uh, 62. So that's obviously from a 1996 to, I imagine, 2002, even, I guess, a bit further on. And I guess that kind of does include associates. Now, there was an associate members, uh, apparently. So there's a difference between being a fully fledged member and then being an associate member. And something I found rather interesting, I think you would find this kind of interesting as well, um, it was the WWE uh, incarnation of the NWO. Ric Flair, who was the then general manager of Raw, did turn heel on Stone Cold Steve Austin, sort of helping the NWO. So Ric Flair, technically an associate of the NWO. Never thought I would uh, hear those words or see those words because, you know, four horsemen, Ric Flair for life. But he was actually an associate of the NWO if you include, uh, I guess, this entire existence of the NWO. And it's crazy to think that that could be technically correct because I mean I, I certainly haven't forgotten the uh, the Four Horsemen parody that the uh, the NWO um, produced where you had Kid in the back crying and the level of sort of very real disrespect that was shown to the Nature Boy to think that um you know arguably the greatest performer of all time who was basically stood for everything that the NWO wasn't um, would be identified as being under their banner in some capacity is um is pretty mind blowing actually so yeah. Let's go back to the start. Obviously, um, two chaps over in the World Wrestling Federation are not too happy with their pay and maybe, I wouldn't say so much, definitely wouldn't be creative. It was all about the money, really. Uh, Razor Ramon, Big Daddy Called Diesel, they're, uh, they're out of uh, the WWF and uh, they've signed uh, very lucrative uh, contract deals with Turner, with WCW. And it was May 27, 1996. Scott Hall comes out of the crowd and uh, says to uh, the, the WCW audience there, You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. What a moment that was. Um, and, and a really, I mean, from start to finish, a really great way of introducing um, Scott to WCW TV. I mean, having him come come in through the crowd, you know what I mean? You're already planting the seeds of this guy is an outsider. This guy doesn't belong here. He's not part of our roster. He's not part of our business. Um, having him come in there, he had all, like, as you know, as much as WCW and his lawyers would like to say otherwise, he had all the mannerisms of Razor. So if you'd, uh, if you'd watched at least more than five minutes of WWF TV at the time, you knew who he was. Um, having him come in there, but also my understanding is I was watching a, a table for three episode with um, with Scott Hall not too long ago. Um, he's sitting down with DDP and Kid, and he and he was talking about that episode. And apparently they'd include the commentators in. The ref didn't know. The guys in the ring didn't know at the time. I think there were four people who knew. One would assume that's obviously Easy E. DDP claimed to have known. Um, so when Scott gets in the ring, the reactions there, you know, where everyone sort of clears out and they go, we don't know what's going on here. That was all legit, you know, because no one really knew what Scott was doing in a WCW ring. I think it all added to the magic of the moment. And it's funny you mentioned the uh, lawsuit uh, with the WWF at the time. I think uh, Eric Bischoff's uh, retort to that would be, well, he was the diamond stud uh, in WCW and did similar mannerisms. I think he had the little curly bit of hair down and, you know, would throw the toothpick. So I think that was a bit of a, I guess, uh, how they could respond to the lawsuit. But I think they did everything they could possibly do without saying, 
on Razor Ramon or I used to, you know, not, you know, not they, they mentioned things like you don't know why we, we are here, you know, obviously then including uh, Kevin Nash, uh, Diesel, um, who would then come in the following week. Uh, they'll, you know, use words like we were taken over that, you know, some wrestling fans would be, oh, are they mentioning or are they sort of uh, including the WWF in on this? But it was very clever that, you know, they. I guess this would have been eternal legal sort of saying what you can and can't say, standards and practices, I'm not too sure. But very clever where I think is I'd have to look at the actual uh, lawsuit, but I think it would have got thrown out or there was just ongoing litigation that would go on for years where it would kind of hamstring, I guess, more WCW as they would go on with the Monday Night War. But I thought it was clever. They didn't they didn't say that. It was all about you, you assumed that type of uh, mentality. Yeah, look, it was it was very crafty, and I mean, look to to their credit, I think Eric Bischoff and Turner um, uh, have enacted what I call the Stephen Colbert excuse. Whenever Stephen Colbert used to do his uh, parody show of um, Bill O'Reilly on Fox News, um, Bill O'Reilly asked him, "Don't you owe me a royalty check?" And he said, "Well, no. There's a difference between Im- imitation and emulation. If I'm imitating you, then I have to. Uh, I think it was imitation. Yeah, he said one of the two. He said, if I imitate you or I emulate you, I owe you a royalty check. If I'm doing the other, then I owe you squat. Um, and I kind of." get the feeling maybe Eric Bischoff uh, was nice and slippery with this one and got away with it because let's be honest I mean at the end of the day in wrestling there's only so many original ideas everyone's borrowing something and obviously June 2nd 96 Kevin Nash uh, makes his way here and um, I guess you know uh, mostly remembered for uh, getting his adjectives uh, mixed up this is where the big boys play huh look at the adjective play we ain't here to play. Yeah, look at the adjective. Um, <laughs> maybe look at the dictionary, Big Kev. Um, I tell you, such an iconic moment. Um, I don't know if it was the pressure of the moment because, I mean, Big Kev, you know, he, he, he's, he's a ring general. Um, you know, he, he, smart, he, he knows his way. Yeah, yeah, he's smart. You know what I mean? He's intelligent. I mean, look, he got guaranteed money from Turner. Um, he's not—he's not a dumb man by any stretch of the imagination. But that was definitely probably not his um, his brightest uh, moment on the stick, as they say. But um, unfortunately for him, one of the biggest moments of his career. So that uh, that little soundbite will live on in infamy. Oh, but still, regardless, it's an iconic moment showing up um, on the little stage there where they had the announcers, which is another thing about WCW I liked at the time, how they had the big stage for the announcers next to the ramp. It was great stuff. And I guess that leads then to the Great American Bash uh, where Kevin Nash, Jackknife, Powerbombs, Eric Bischoff through the stage uh, of that uh, particular set there, which uh, I guess sort of set the precedence for these guys aren't messing around. And the talk of, you know, you get your best three guys against us, us our best three and the term of the third man uh, was uh, being dropped and I guess dirt sheets and uh, I guess I don't know how big the internet was back then it was uh, probably on one of those big computers back then Um, but I mean there's been those docos where uh, Dave Meltzer's room is just covered in books and all sorts of papers I imagine it looked something similar to that when he was trying to figure out who the third man was. I think I think those books are literally just binders of A4 pages with the word Mabel and a big question mark written on it, repeated over and over and over again. I mean, um, that, that seemed to have been the that seemed to have been the philosophy. I mean, just just winding back there. I mean, fair play to Eric Bischoff, man. He took a great bump, um, you know, going through the table there. Uh, he really wanted to make sure that this looked like it was an outside force coming in to take over WCW. Um, I I remember thinking like this is 
this is interesting. You know what I mean? I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't of the age at that point to really know all the dirt sheet angles and, and know where to look and, you know, PW Insider and all that. So I was kind of following along with a very genuine interest here. Um, fair play to WCW, Turner and Eric Bischoff. This was a fantastic way to lead into Bash at the Beach. And uh, yes, Uncle Dave Meltzer, he did write, uh, I think he penned that Mabel was the third man. I think there was even uh, potential rumours that the British Bulldog uh, may have been the third man. Um, but I guess uh, with twenty twenty hindsight, we now know if uh, Hogan said that doesn't work for me, brother, Sting was eventually going to be the uh, the backup or the third man. But there was also rumours, this is around the time where Bret Hart, uh, he just um, had a great Iron Man match with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania, I think his contract was up at the time. So I think his contract basically finished um, when he had some time off. And I think whether you believe Eric Bischoff or Bret Hart, one says they did talk, one says they didn't talk. Imagine if Bret Hart was uh, the third man who rocked up at uh, Bash at the Beach. Yeah, that'd be pretty impressive. And I mean, but I, I'm kind of glad it was Hogan at the end because um, we wouldn't have had the Montreal screw job without that. One of the most, you know, talked about moments of the Monday Night Wars. Um, I think for for Bret Hart, maybe if he had gone to WCW at the time, maybe his career and his trajectory with the company might have gone a little bit better than it actually did. But um, look, at the end of the day, I, I like to think that even with all those names you just thrown out there, Hogan still makes the most sense. Um, and absolutely, at the time, I mean, Hogan, people were starting to get a little bit you we talk about you know wcw being that kind of bringing in that counterculture feel with the nwo hogan was the 80s you know what i mean he was that established cotton candy take your vitamins say your prayers red and yellow true real american character but people were starting to get bored of that it was starting to get stale you know what i mean people wanted something different and by simply taking hogan and saying you fans can stick it brother um and throwing on the black and white Boy, did that rejuvenate his career. Um, so I don't think there was any better man for the third man role than Hollywood Hulk Hogan. What about Sting, though? So let's say Hogan, because, I mean, a big part of Hogan's uh, reluctance at first was, the, I guess, the Hulk Hogan brand, you know, seen as this good guy. Obviously, kids, uh, you know, loved him at the time, you know, and that was a big money spinner for him. Let's say he goes, nah, brother, uh, I'm going to pass on that one. I think uh, Kevin Nash would later say he saw that money train going and he uh, wanted a seat on that. <laughs> and so Sting, Sting is your backup guy. I, I imagine how uh, in an alternate uh, universe that would have worked. Yeah, look, I think for Sting, it would have been okay. I mean, it, it would have been, I mean, Sting was going to be moving towards this kind of black and white crow, um, you know, aesthetic, uh, I think, regardless. But I mean, to be able to have a, a talent, the face of the WWF, you know, um, be that third man, I think, logically speaking, it makes a lot more sense. You have three um, you know, largely born and bred WWF guys. You know, we're not going to talk about Nash's run in WCW back in the day and the silly jackety wall. Let's let's forget all about that. These guys were WWF guys. Sting was never a WWF guy. So you couldn't have the strength of that angle of having the guys from up north banding together to take down, you know, the organization from down south. I think logically it just made a lot more sense for, for Hogan to be there. I mean, Sting is incredibly talented. Talented. I think he would have absolutely run with it and made it his own. But in terms of uh, overall, I think it would have been, you know, in terms of Hogan v Sting, it was, it's a comparison of making a platinum record versus a gold record. And obviously July 96, the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, uh, it was Lex Luger, Randy Savage, 
And yeah, Lex Luger, Randy Savage, and Sting taking on then the Outsiders, being Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and uh, the third man hadn't rocked up yet until uh, Red and Yellow Brother comes out. Uh, and I think Bobby Heenan, the brain, sort of, but whose side is he on? And a lot of people, depending on who you speak to, did that, uh, was that a spoiler or was that uh, a genuine sort of take that uh, any normal person watching wrestling would have? Hulkamania! Hulk Hogan is here! Hulk Hogan's here! in the building! You're damn right he is! Go get him, Hulkster! Yeah, but whose side is he on? Go, what are you talking about? Whose side is he on? What are you talking about? It's funny you say that because I'm glad you asked me the question because I was going to ask you, did it, did it ruin it for you? I, I know for me personally, um, at the time, being a bit younger and a little bit more naive to the, the workings of the biz, I didn't really pick up on it, you know, it wasn't that obvious to me, but I think watching it back, you know, a little bit later on, a couple of years down the line, once you become a little bit more familiar with the the swervy nature of that time, the Monday Night Wars, absolutely that stands out to me as a, um, as a maybe a bit of a spoiler there. Um, you know, I think it really depends on your exposure to the business and your age um, at the time. No, it didn't ruin it for me. If I were watching that now as an adult, um, and I was pretending to not know the outcome, that would make me rethink why Hogan was there and what his intentions were. Absolutely. But um, I think, but I mean, you know, if you look at it as a, let's look at this as it's, this is real brother, um, a commentator, you know, that there is supposed to be a quote unquote analysis, then that would be a, 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 a normal thought that would possibly go through anyone's head. But uh, neither here or there. We did touch on Sting there. He kind of, I guess, was going through a similar position of uh, getting a little bit stale like Hulk Hogan was. So he kind of knew he had to change things up. And I guess when you're talking about the NWO, you would be remiss to not mention, obviously, Sting's transformation and his uh, massive rivalry with uh, the NWO. I mean, we had the fake Sting, the confusion over his allegiance and the dropping down from the ceiling and the uh, the baseball bat and obviously the the full crow um, uh, aesthetic uh, that obviously just started printing money. Yeah, it was the makeover that he needed. I mean, uh, the, I think we were at that point in the business where the um, you know the the, the neon coloured face paint and the sort of surface style kind of gimmicks were um, were quite you know, past the use by date. Um, so to be able to take this moment and, and sort of rechristen Sting as this um, omnipresent figure up in the rafters watching over all the misdeeds of the NWO and what was he going to do? When was he going to show up? When was he going to come down from the rafters? You know what I mean? It was a really cool way of, of breathing new life into his character. Um, I think we give Chris Jericho a lot of credit for his ability to reinvent himself and, and adjust with the times. But I think this was actually as good an example of somebody um, being able to make um, the next step in the in the chapter of their gimmick, you know, um, and having Sting positioned as the, you know, the, the heart and the soul um, of WCW, you know, in the same vein as Ric Flair was um, was a really smart move as well. And it would also be, um, if I didn't mention, like, I guess you have to say there'd be three guys who battled the NWO and was quite successful, uh, obviously Sting, uh, DDP, Diamond Dallas Page, especially with Randy Savage, and obviously that iconic uh, Monday night uh, night show, I think it was in uh, the Georgia Dome uh, in Atlanta, I'm pretty sure that is, um, where Goldberg would beat Hulk Hogan for the World Heavyweight title. So as much uh, flack as the NWO does get uh, for just being a very stale sort of uh, storyline that probably went on for a little bit too long, you did have great feuds with Goldberg, DDP, and Sting. 
Yeah, fair play. And look, honestly, um, you know, Hogan, I think, deserves credit for um, for doing the job for, for for Bill Goldberg in in the Georgia Dome. You know what I mean? I, I, I many consider the spiritual home of WCW. You know, down there in Atlanta. Um, RIP to the Georgia Dome. Um, the the funny thing I, I I find in all of that is, you know, a lot of people talk about Hogan, um, you know, being hard to work with, and I have no doubt that he, um, you know, has, has played his politics and done what he's needed to do to maintain his his status in the business. But you know, when the, when the time was right to put over someone, he he did that. You know, you look at his encounter with Rock at WrestleMania 18. You look at him putting over Bill at the time. You look at him jobbing to Brian uh, to. Um, uh, Billy Kidman, rather. Uh, I was going to say Brian <laughs> Pillman, but you look at him jobbing to Billy Kidman. Um, you know, there, there are examples there of Hogan, you know, doing work for other people. And, I mean, geez, what, what, what an atmosphere in the Georgia Dome there. My only criticism of that was I wish it was on pay-per-view because could you imagine the buy rate on that? Yeah, but then again, I guess being part of the Turner Sports, they're, they're a television company as well, so I guess they would have loved that uh, skyrocketing uh, rating. But a 2020 type of thing, you, you would try to build for that to a pay-per-view. But I guess that was kind of becoming of a WCW around this time where maybe not the best creative was happening. And we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the numerous amounts of uh, members being added to uh, the NWO. I know when uh, after Fall Brawl 96 where Sting basically went on a sabbatical, I guess you could say, you know, the one thing's for sure, nothing's for sure when it comes to Sting. Uh, that Monday Night Show uh, 6, uh, Sean Maltman, mm-hmm. uh, the kid, as uh, you mentioned he kind of joins the nwo you'd have the likes of uh, ted dibiase and the likes of the buffs and uh kurt henning coming across i mean it just seemed like a whole cast of characters uh joining this uh, nwo black and white and as we get to sort of the uh 98 period of here we see a little bit of a division a civil war if you will and it brings up another important question are you Wolfpack or are you uh, hollywood I around this time, even though I'm wearing the white and black right now, because you know I'm I'm, a, I'm an original NWO guy. I was I was a Wolfpack fan. You know what I mean? Um, we we mentioned Sting. Um, I think the main driver for me being a Wolfpack guy was the the speculation over where Sting was gonna you know hang his hat, and it, it had that fantastic moment um, where. You know, Stinger was about to review, uh, was about to reveal his allegiance, and, I, and it was a classic wrestling swerve. You know, where Stinger's there, and he's he's got the uh, he's got the black and white, and then uh, you see him take off the shirt to reveal the the red and black underneath. What, what screams pro wrestling more in the late 90s than Sting doing that to show which way he was going to go in terms of the uh, NWO allegiance? And it was the birth of uh, Tomato Sting. Yeah, look, I probably not uh, his best look, 
Um, he said, my, my, my view was it looked like he'd been down at, uh, as Vince would call it, the Redneck Riviera um, and had been uh, maybe on the beach a little bit too much under the sun <laughs> and he's rocked up to work um, a little bit tomatoed. But that's another issue altogether. Well, that would be in a far contrast to the 97 Starcade where apparently, you know, they were thinking about not uh, giving the belt to Sting because he wasn't tanned enough. Yeah, a bit of a weird one. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I think in in pro wrestling terms, the uh, the fake tan um, probably should have gone the way of the Ico Pro um, and just been done away with. Um, but uh, look, I'm, I'm not sure there was any fake tan left um, after Hogan had been through the uh, the locker room. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, Civil War, NWO Hollywood v NWO Wolfpack. We, uh, I guess, we're kind of teased that we we're going to have this Civil War. Hogan v Kevin Nash, was it going to happen? You know, there was a lot of sparring in, you know, uh, in-ring promos. And if you want to, you know, read dirt sheets or, you know, listen to shoot interviews, this was a bit of a, uh, I'm trying to think of the correct word, it was a bit of an interesting time where Kevin Nash maybe wasn't seen eye to eye with Hulk Hogan. You know, Hulk Hogan had creative control, maybe wanted to protect his spot. Kevin Nash was the, I guess, the younger generation coming up. You know, he was... You know, him and uh, Bret Hart, Razor Ramon, they were the new generation of the WWF until they uh, jumped ship. But on the mic, Kevin Nash would absolutely obliterate uh, Hulk Hogan. I think there's – I'll have to find it. There's a, when they were sort of sparring in the ring, he mentioned something about Hulk Hogan's uh, glasses because I, I see that you're wearing your wife's sunglasses again or something like that, and you can actually see Hulk Hogan take them off. And when you can tell someone sort of well, – I wouldn't say it affected him, but, you know, definitely, you know, got one up on the Hulkster. First off, before you open your mouth, why don't you take your wife's sunglasses off? And it was teased that there was going to be this battle, but uh, we got the finger poke of doom instead. What's that about? Yeah, that was the uh, the January fourth, I believe, episode of Nitro, nineteen ninety nine. A huge moment, right in the in the history of the Monday Night Wars. This, I think it was the same night that Mick Foley won the uh, the world title over mm. in um, the WWF. Um, yeah, I mean, look, that was it was a massive, massive evening. Um, Kevin has always been pretty good on the stick, I have to say, and he has had a fantastic way of blurring the lines between. Um, scripted promo and just adding enough spice to make people think, "Ooh, that wasn't that wasn't part of the story," you know. Um, to have that wind up the way that it did, I mean, the finger poke of doom. We all talk about it um, as if it was the uh, the end of WCW. I don't know if it was the end of WCW. I think if people uh, are um, being a little bit dramatic when they say that, was it uh, an indicator of perhaps? Not the very best booking, yes. Um, was it a major milestone in the Monday Night Wars? Yes. Um, but was it as devastating as people make out? Look, I probably don't think so. I think at the time what it came down to was a lack of direction for WCW. Um, and I think, unfortunately, with the way that uh, the NWO was being treated from then on in and perhaps some of the waning interest, um, it was a sign of a, a decline that was to come. But it certainly wasn't the end of it. And we got the NWO, del- uh, I was going to say delete. Uh, no, the NWO elite. And uh, just you know, researching for this, um, using the elite, and obviously the likes of the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, uh, calling themselves the elite. So, again, uh, you know, what's old is new and what new is old, I guess, uh, in that way. But so it was a mix of the black and white and red. It was an interesting uh, spin on the, the NWO logo. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts as to whether, you know, at what point do you think it became obvious that the NWO angle, NWO angle was sort of running out of legs? I, I, I felt that there was still steam behind the Hollywood and Wolfpack um, split. I thought that made for some interesting TV and you're bringing in faces like Sting who, you know, livened it up a little bit. But was this the point in your view where things had sort of perhaps jumped the shark a little bit? Well, I guess if you're not going to have Hollywood uh, v Wolfpack in any type of pay-per-view payoff or whether that be in a tag team, you know, have like the likes of Aluga, Conan and Nash take on uh, three representatives from Hollywood or, um, you know, ideally you wanted that match, which was Kevin Nash uh, and Hogan. But, you know, I think the the speak was, oh, you know, they wouldn't have been able to have a good match even though they would kind of have matches uh, later on down the road. I mean... I would have liked to have seen, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood v Wolfpack, but you never really saw it. And I think there was a lot of politicking about that, whether that be on Hogan's side or Nash's side. I mean, you know, who cares at this at this stage? But would have liked to have seen it. We didn't get it. We kind of got this real merge of the both brands and then the B team becoming the main NWO guys, or they thought they were when they were fighting for the leadership of the B team, Vincent and Stevie Ray, which uh, have ratings all over it. God love them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know. Like, again, I'm saying review. This didn't ruin WCW um, or the end of it. Or maybe it was a, the start of, you know, like you said, bad booking decisions to come. I would have liked to see the match. I think maybe after Bash of the Beach 98 when they had Dennis Rodman and that was kind of when uh, Hogan dropped the title to Goldberg and then uh, Hogan kind of disappeared after Halloween Havoc with that really bad match with Warrior. I think that might have been a good time to, you know, let's slow this down, let's head in another direction and possibly, re, you know, in another year or however long down the line, bring it back up. But we kind of got this real weird merge and it kind of just uh, lost steam and, yeah, it was very confusing. It almost felt like it didn't go anywhere, which I think mm. is is the disappointing thing because um, fans like to see uh, an angle being set up. They like to see the drama through the midpoint. And then, as you say, there needs to be the payoff. And I don't think we ever got the payoff there. So I think we're all sort of left a little bit little bit hanging there, which um, which never really kind of sat right with the, with the fans, I don't think. And Hulk Hogan would go on to bring back the yellow and red brother, um, go for that for a, a short stint in, you know, 99 to 2000. Uh, the NWO was uh, left dormant for a little bit until uh, NWO, the tail end of 99, going into 2000 with a Bret Hart heel turn after winning the, the major title there at WCW, joined by Jeff Jarrett, Kevin Nash and Scott Steiner. Uh, as a kid at the time, I thought this was great. Oh, yeah, cool. This is, you know, uh, the NWO's back. I was kind of all on board for that. But um, that uh, Bill Goldberg kick at Starcade kind of uh, left Brett a bit shook and probably didn't look after himself as well as he could have afterwards and was wrestling. And uh, Jeff Jarrett also got injured and, I think this incarnation of the NWO was snake bit. One good thing we did get, though, was we got uh, Kevin Nash to be the WCW commissioner for a little bit there. Yeah, look, that, that was an interesting time. Um, was, uh, was he the, the legitimate booker behind the scenes by this point as well? I think he... He was he was booking at some stage, I think. Well, everyone likes to say that he was booking around uh, Starcade '98. I think I think it was a, possibly around this period of time. It was definitely um, before I think Eric Bischoff got um, got asked because I think by uh, this time I think Vince Russo was uh, and Ed Ferrara were quote unquote uh, the creative drive. So I don't think it was right at this time, but it wouldn't have been too far off this time. 
Yeah, no, look, that makes sense. I mean, for me, look, I, I, I had no real issues with Kevin Nash as the, as the commissioner. I, the WWF by this point had been um, doing a sort of commissioner angle of its own, right, with, with Shawn Michaels and they were doing Mick Foley and all that sort of thing. So you had these kind of authoritative figures that were, you know, wrestlers anyway. Was it his highlight of his career? Look, probably not, I don't think. Um, but it was probably appropriate for where WCW was at the time. Um, the funny thing, actually, I just want to loop back slightly, if you don't mind, was just I just wanted to make mention of um you, you're talking about hogan um at this point in you know 99 and going into the 2000s i one nwo era um item that that really stood out to me was um sold out in 1999 actually um it was i think it was hogan um had, had taken the strap to, to david flair and i mean the fact that david flair was even involved in, in any in-ring capacity um kind of says it all at this point but i think wasn't it hogan had had lashed um david quite a fair bit with the with the belt and flair had um, become quite legitimately angry with the fact that hogan had gone gone to town on his son with the belt and then i think they spray painted easy e on david's back um and i think this this led to some legit heat between hulk and and flair for, for some time after that as well yeah i think you're correct i think uh flair probably thought that hogan was maybe taking liberties with his son um <laughs> and i think the way it turned around i think a few uh months later at the super brawl i think david flair was uh had a cup of coffee with the NWO until he was uh, then expelled, uh, one of uh, many 62 members to be part of the NWO. Um, but, yeah, I do think that uh, backstage did cause uh, quote-unquote problems uh, for, I mean, you know, Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, two of the biggest superstars to come out of the 70s and 80s. So, yeah, I think, yeah, that was a bit of a, I guess it's it's weird. You talk about blurring lines and, you know, things being at work and then, you know, being a shoot in other hands, I think, yeah, that would, it caused issues for them backstage. But it's, there's always been one thing consistent with WCW um, is that the amount of times they would go back to a Hogan-Ric Flair match. I mean, they, they face each other so many times it's, uh, it's, it's quite uh, ridiculous. But whether or not there was real heat there, they would always come back and do business, mostly uh, with Hulk Hogan winning. Exactly. I, I, I'm not sure if you attended, but I, I remember going to the Hulkamania tour in 2009 um, with with my friend Blake, one of my childhood friends. He's a big WCW fan. We never thought in our lifetime we would ever get to see the Hulk versus the Nature Boy, but um, we saw it in Sydney, Australia. So um, just goes to show you the more that things change in history, others stay the same. So um, big WCW vibes with that one. As a quick side note, how was that? I heard it, it, it was successful, but not as successful as they were hoping for it to be. Yeah, I, I recall this. I mean, this was at the uh, what was then the Sydney Superdome. So I think it's about a twenty odd thousand seat capacity arena. I remember they um, they curtained off the entire upper tier of of the um, of the arena. So you're probably talking, I think maybe t- ten, twelve maybe 15,000 fans um, in total. I don't think it was a, a, uh, a smash hit for, for them. Um, and I do recall that it was actually meant to be broadcast on 1HD in Australia. They, they taped the Sydney event um, and the broadcast never wound up going to air. So there is in some vaults somewhere a high-definition recording of this match, um, which was, you know, the card was actually pretty good. You had the, you had the likes of sort of Gangrel and, um, and uh, Umaga. The Vampire Warrior. <laughs> The Vampire Warrior was there. Um, Mr. Anderson was there. And, and, and Umaga as well. Uh, rest his soul. I think he passed away about a week after the event. Yeah. So um, it was probably some of his last matches were in Australia. So um, really special event, but some good reasons, others not so much. Yeah. 
But uh, NWO 2000, snake bit from the beginning. But uh, I guess that was really the kind of the last really incarnation, I guess, for a WCW uh, venture that we would see with the NWO. It wouldn't be until uh, WWE purchased uh, WCW uh, 2001. Uh, we get that invasion, which was okay, but definitely didn't live up to what most wrestling fans were uh, hoping for. But uh, towards the end of uh, 2002, we uh, we get a promo from Vince B man about injecting a lethal dose of poison uh, into his own company. Uh, I think on the back of the chair he had the NWO uh, uh, logo uh, spray painted there and come no way out, I believe it is. This is all heading into WrestleMania. The NWO, Hogan, Hall and Nash make their uh, debut uh, in WWE. Yeah, look, you're right. Actually, I think it was the it was the end of 2001. I think this was around. Uh, this was in the wash up of um, obviously the invasion angle. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Vince. Yeah, I remember he was in his office. He had the NWO logo and he did the swivel chair reveal, which was fantastic visually. Um, I remember being really excited about this. Um, I'm sure the WWF locker room um, were less excited. They knew what the politics um, and the style of a of a Hogan Nash and Hall were like, and what that was like culturally guys um back in wcw so i imagine there was some apprehension with with the talent um seeing these guys come in but i know from a fan perspective i was really excited to see where this was going to go um and to have them introduced at no way out as you say 2002 um with the uh, with the lettering the nwo um some of the great promos that they used to introduce them and i think they even opened that pay-per-view as well um and came out and cut a cut a quick promo um before going on and having a, uh, a confrontation with The Rock um, was a uh, was pretty cool way to bring him in in 2002, I thought. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, words have been thrown around in association with the NWO like poison. We've heard that. Cancer. You know, some people say that we're self-servant. You know, some people actually have used profanity and have said that the NWO is a bunch of company-killing I think that was you that said that, JR. That hurts our feelings. I mean, what is it we've done? What, what awful thing did we do? King, their feelings are hurt. Give me a break. We want the ability to come out and prove to you great fans You're applauding the fans. Not only can we do it, but nobody does it quite like us. Hey, yo. We're not the bad guys. We're fans. We just want the opportunity to work with some of the great WWF superstars. But the point is, we don't want any trouble. Because deep down, we're just like all of you. Sure they are. Sure they are, King. Well, maybe, maybe we should give them a chance.
I agree, King. Neither did I. He's choked up. Oh, come on. He's emotional. Don't buy into this. Listen to these fans. Oh, King, you, oh, you or nobody else is believing a word of this. You know, Scott and Kevin, I couldn't agree with you more. We're, we're just like all of you out there. I mean, we might be a little richer and a little more famous, but I mean, we're not here to kill the WWF. We're here to make it better. Well, that's a relief. All we want to do is give the WWF fans exactly what they want. And all we want from you is a chance. But it's up to all you out there and all the boys in the back if we get our chance. That remains to be seen. But I can tell you one thing right now. In all sincerity, there's one man who gave the NWO a chance, and that was Vince McMahon. And right now, I'd like to thank Vince McMahon for the opportunity. And I want to tell you, Vince McMahon, we will not let you down. God bless Vince McMahon. Thank you. And God bless all of you, too. And last of all, God bless America. Thank you for the chance. Did we give him a chance, JR? I can't speak for you. I, I don't buy into one word that we just heard. Absolutely. I mean, I actually bought that DVD, No Way Out, uh, 2002, and obviously the No Way Out, the NWO, that kind of all went uh, in together nicely. Uh, but you mentioned that promo. I'd have to say, besides obviously the Rock Hogan um, and thing uh, that we'd get in later that night, uh, <laughs> Rock doing that. <laughs> I mean, some great stuff. But that opening promo, I thought uh, it's actually been edited on YouTube. You'd sort of, I don't know if you'd be able to watch it on um the network unedited, um, but, you know, Kevin Nash kicked it off, been like, you know, you know, saying, what awful thing did we do? And, uh, you know, Scott Hall talking to saying that we're fans, you know, we'd perhaps even like to have a couple of beers with the boys. And it was funny, Hogan and um, Nash look at um, Hall then and be like, they kind of like, like put up only one finger, like sort of obviously alluding to a bit of a previous issue, but, um, you know, a bit of realism there. But this, the mannerisms were quite funny how they did it. Um, even Hogan as well, I think he sort of starts talking about, you know, we're, we're just like you. And just then off the cuff of that goes, you know, we, we might be a bit more rich and famous, but <laughs> it was just superbly <laughs> delivered. And if that was, I guess, followed through, um, the NWA could have had a, a good little uh, stint there. But uh, once uh, the crowd sort of saw Hogan, they weren't seeing Hogan, um, the Hollywood Hogan, the bad guy. They were just seeing red and yellow Hogan of old, I guess. And I guess that's what sort of pushed Vince to to change plans, as it were. Because if you listen to Hall and Nash, they were supposed to be leaving Austin and uh, The Rock uh, in blood at the end of uh, WrestleMania 18. And uh, obviously uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, Hogan uh, goes back to the red and yellow. The NWO are kind of looking, they're, they're less of a, a player, uh, some new guys come back. We get uh, obviously X Pac, who I guess people like to say he was the only uh, WCW, NWO, and only DX, WWF guy. But you mentioned Rick Rude before. I think he kind of gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. He's technically uh, technically both. But I'm getting sidetracked. But um, I guess it, it was it was 
had all good intentions, but uh, like most WWE plans uh, nowadays, sort of uh, falls off uh, a cliff. Yeah, look, I don't think, I think Vince uh, and the creative team weren't really um, predicting that reaction that Hogan got, um, you know, call it nostalgia, whatever you may. I mean, a lot of fans remembered the, the Hogan of yesteryear. I think we'd seen um, kind of almost like a coming full circle moment where in, you know, 1996, the fans were sick and tired of the red and yellow and we'd seen the, the heel Hogan for so long. And I mean, of course, obviously Hogan had, had dabbled back with his, you know, real American um gimmick towards the end of his WCW tenure, but fans are ready to see American made American made. Sorry, Jimmy Hart. I send you my apologies. Um, (laughs) Full credit to you, my friend. Um, Yeah, no, look, I quick quick sidebar, real American or American made. Oh, look, I, I, I have to go real American. I, I apologize. Um, too many early WrestleMania memories of seeing the whole come out to that one that uh, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to beat the original. Let's be honest though. Um, you know, American made, uh, if that had stood up by itself, um, I think it would be equally as fantastic, but nostalgia kicks in for me. I'm afraid on that one. I'm actually, um, um it, if you, if you look up, um, on the, the YouTube, uh, uh, he doesn't carry glitter club, uh, cover, uh, leader of the gang. Yeah, it's actually uh, quite catchy. I will, I will, I will check that one out. That's on my two-watch <laughs> list for sure. Um, in terms of yeah, look, in terms of uh, Hogan coming back though, like I said, I think uh, I think WWF uh, and the the creative team didn't realize how much nostalgia and love was there for Hogan. Um, the funny thing is for me is that I I would have loved to have seen Hogan, Nash, and Hall play that sheepish character a little bit longer. I thought, I, I agree with you. I thought the promo that they delivered in ring to open um, No Way Out was fantastic. You know, like you said, the, you just want to, you know, maybe get a couple of pictures, get an autograph, you know, and, and have, have that beer with that allusion to Scott's problems. Um, you know, I thought it was fantastic. But I think the next night on Raw, they were immediately um, running down uh, Rock's uh, ambulance with a uh, with a big rig. So there was no doubt that they were looking to make them an aggressive force. I think a lot of people look back at this time and the introduction of the NWO in 2002 to the WWF as, as a failure. I think it succeeded up to a point. So it worked in setting up Rock Hogan, one of the most iconic, you know, uh, sorry to use that word again, icon v icon matches in WrestleMania mm. history. Um, if you if you judge its success based purely on that and then, you know, the babyface turn and then Hogan stepping away from the NWO afterwards and then ushering in his kind of run, you know, you wouldn't have had Hogan winning the tag titles with Edge later that year, you know, um, or going on with his double as Mr. America and, you know, his match with Vince next year at Mania. If you didn't have that babyface, you um, turn you know so it was a success up to that point i think anything after wrestlemania 18 for that iteration of the nwo is largely forgettable and i mean look let's be honest i i loved seeing Shawn michaels back in the wwf in 2002 but was i going to buy a pay-per-view just because he came out with his you know cloth cap and his nwo shirt probably not <laughs> uh it's and i guess you know how uh deep into the the weeds and you know the dirt sheets and the background the background uh rumor in, in innuendo as uh bruce pritchard likes to say um because there are wcw 
product or a, a made WCW thing. The the machine that these WWE, aka Vince McMahon, doesn't fully want to go and invest in it because it's they didn't make it. Um, would you reckon there's an argument for that? I, I'm not too sure. Look, I'm a little bit more sceptical on that. I do think that Vince, um, in the aftermath of the Attitude Era and the Invasion Angle, I think guys like DDP and Booker T weren't necessarily utilised to their full potential. Um, in terms of the NWO, though, I think there was a chance to print some money there. And I think it was the perfect storm of misfortune when it comes to the original plan for the NWO in 2002. You had Hogan receiving a massive baby reaction that was unplanned and, and unforecast. You then have Kevin Nash, I think, tore his quad around this time. Um, you had uh, Scott Hall released following, I think it was the infamous plane ride from hell coming back from the UK. Um, so, you know, all three of them had their own um, misfortunes or um, other plans that played out for them. So um, do I think that they were buried as, as some sort of, you know, Vince McMahon plot? Look, probably not. Um, I think it more comes down to the fact that, as I mentioned, you had unexpected uh, fan reaction coupled with injury, coupled with the demons impacting Scott Hall that ultimately meant the three, the core three mm. with the, of the NWO, really weren't going to be in the place to be what they wanted them to be. Now, this is fantasy booking at its best. So Hogan, you know, he leaves the NWO. Somehow um, we get in contact with uh, Macho Man Randy Savage and he sort of takes that spot uh, of the Hogan role. Could have that worked? I mean, I, I couldn't – it would obviously it didn't happen, but could have that ever happened? Could we have seen that incarnation where Randy Savage comes back, is welcome back to the WWF and is the leader of the NWO? I think so. Look, I think it could work. It's, it's funny. I've never actually considered that. So it's a really good question. Um, I think if Randy did come back and they were able to patch up whatever issues they had with uh, whatever issues the, the Macho Man had with Vince, then fantastic. I think that could have been interesting. Um, my suspicion is, though, that the nostalgia factor would kick in as well and you'd have something similar happen um, yeah. with, with Randy. I think, you know, if, if he were brought back in April of May of 2002, I think come... Survivor Series that year, maybe Armageddon, you're going to have fans going, no, we want to see the old Randy. We want the streamers, you know what I mean? The multicolored streamers. We want to see him snapping into another Slim Jim, you know? Um, I don't think that could have lasted for more than a year, but it definitely could have injected some life into, you know, the NWO for as long as you could do with what was left of it in WWF. We'll just imagine it, you know, Vince McMahon comes out and goes, uh, now I hear you that you want the old macho man back. So here he is, Bonesaw. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been a special moment? You just know that it would have been a highlight of the, uh, what, the Raw 10th anniversary, which came, I think, what, in January of the next year. That would have yeah. been on replay for sure. But, I mean, look, again, we I don't think we ever fully worked out the reasons um, why uh, Randy was persona non grata with um Vince McMahon and the WWF. There's been speculation there. I won't go into it, but, um, you know, it was a shame that we didn't get to see him, um, you know, back in a physical capacity. Um, and, you know, 2020 hindsight, like you say, um, fantasy booking is a wonderful thing. Maybe you could go and book it in one of the WWE video games. I don't know, but yeah, um, it would have been nice should to be see. Coming out. Uh, yeah, 2022 should be coming I, out this year after a year off. 
I will I will watch the IGN review and maybe the GameSpot review before I plonk my cash down having bought um, WWE 2K20. But we will, uh, yeah, we'll see how we go. I remain cautiously optimistic. Absolutely. Um, a missed opportunity, one Hogan out, another Hogan in. Should have just replaced uh, Hulk Hogan with Horace Hogan. He could have been the uh, third man back in WWE. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, or, I'm not so sure or, about that. I mean, Mike even, Awesome. How about Mike Awesome? Uh, yeah, potentially. Or even better, just <laughs> bring the whole Hogan. B. Yeah, he's a Hogan. Bring the whole B team in. Stevie Ray, Vincent, and Horace Hogan. Money. Oh, look, why not? Um, you know, you could have even reused uh, Al Snow's Job Squad t-shirts. I think it would have been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Steve maybe, maybe a bit harsh <laughs> no I love those guys God love them and <laughs> towards the end where I think Vincent he, he became was it Curly Bill or um, he had like a country persona or oh, God oh, I I think I think I'd, I'd flicked over um, over the channel by that point. Yeah. Um, actually, I was you know the funny thing is I was actually watching um, the Godfather uh, Broken Skull session with Steve Austin, and he mentioned that um, he was receiving some big money back in the late '90s before he became the Godfather. If you go over to WCW, in the end they wound up taking Vincent instead. Um, and oh. I think Godfather said, "Look, I think in in hindsight I made the right call with that one." So yeah. um, so there Absolutely. you go. Yeah. Uh, well, as fans, we're all um, pretty happy to see the NWO technically supposed to go in for 2020, but uh, technically, uh, well, they are class of 2020, but officially going in uh, at this year's WrestleMania. Um, that was obviously, of course, uh, Six slash Xbox, Sean Maltland, Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall. Um, where, where's, where do you stand on who should have been inducted? I mean, do you think uh, Sean Waltman was kind of shoehorned in, I guess, as being part of the clique? I mean, I've got no problem with it, but should it just been the core three or the core four there is that's, uh, that, that passes the quote-unquote sniff test? Yeah, look, I in an ideal world, I think I would have stuck to the core three. My, my question is, did or does WWE ever have plans to induct Sean Waltman of his own merit? Um, mm. And my suspicion is that if they've inducted him as, you know, a four in the NWO, that maybe they don't have plans to have inducted him as the one, two, three kid X-Pac, um, you know, the guy with the Uncle Cracker theme in 2001. Um, that song. <laughs> oh, absolute banger. Slaps like there's no tomorrow. Um, look, I think if Sean, if they had no plans to induct Sean um, on his own merit, then it makes sense to include him as part of the NWO. Um, my my suspicion would have been why not Ted DiBiase then, you know, if mm. you were going to go with a, with a four. Um, but, yeah, look, I think if he, if they're not going to induct him of his own merit, totally fine by me. I think if they are in the next three, four, five, six years looking to induct him of his own, then it's it maybe might be a bit of a weird opportunity in hindsight, yeah. I think they should have put in Michael Wall Street with him as well, just, you know, uh, just to cap that off there. He was, he was part of the core group, wasn't he, or Michael Wall Street? Yeah, yeah. Look, he, he was he was part of the core. The, the the problem is, and I was wondering why didn't they just go the full? What'd you say, sixty three? Can WWE afford to make sixty three rings for one induction? I'm not sure, but um, anyway, I think they can. Um, but then technically that would mean the induction of um, of one uh, Canadian wrestler who they don't talk about anymore. So, um, or, or no, actually he wasn't a part of it. He was part of the Horsemen. So I think we're all a-okay then. Um, uh, well, yeah. you know, of late, uh, Buff Bagwell uh, um, getting into uh, 
some some issues with the uh, law enforcement. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he would be he would be he would be part of that. Hopefully, he cleans himself up and gets better soon. But um, yeah, I think there's some. Uh, I mean, Scott Steiner. I don't know if Scott Steiner is. Uh, I don't, don't say not necessarily welcome back, but uh, cautiously. Big, maybe. big popper. Know. Yeah. Big big popper said a few negative things about. Um, Stephanie McMahon in the last few years. So I'm not too sure whether he would be um, quite high up on the list. I, I agree with you on that one. Um, look, I, I would love to see Scott and Rick um, in there, you know, but, um, you know, time will tell. They say, as they say, never say never with WWE. Um, but, you know, look, at the end of the day, um, NWO, glad to see them in the Hall of Fame. Very, very deserving, um, massive part of, of my childhood. And, you know, still something that we talk about to this day. It goes to show you that they're, uh, when you're the NWO, you're uh, NWO for life, right? For life. Too sweet. And uh, before we do wrap up, uh, I don't know if there's anything that I've glossed over. Is there anything in your notes that I might, that I may have missed? Uh, let me just have a quick look. See, I don't think so. I think you've covered it off really, really well. Um, I look. I, 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 my one of my other highlights just really quickly. I will mention um, one of my highlights um, from July 29th, nineteen ninety six. Um, it was uh, that infamous night when Kevin and Scott Hall rock up backstage um, and they were attacking the roster, and it, it had that famous image of uh, Ray Mysterio Jr. launching himself off off one of the uh, the outdoor buildings. There, it might have been a production truck or something like that, and he got caught in the arms of Kevin Nash, and then he throws him into the uh, the demountable of the production truck like a lawn dart. Um, and uh, I think, what was it, in one of his uh, interviews, Bischoff said it caused such a commotion that residents in the surrounding area called the cops because they thought that there was a riot taking place at the site. I mean, how good is that? That is that is a sign that you are producing top quality television when, uh, you know, uh, Beryl uh, from uh, down the street thinks that um, those, those filthy wrestlers are uh, uh, engaging in a riot of some kind. Fantastic television. Another one of my highlights. I obviously, besides the uh, Ray Mysterio getting you know launched into the truck, uh, Randy Savage uh, jumping on top of the uh, limousine while it's driving away. Uh, absolute classic stuff. And we touched on it earlier. That's what set them apart at that time compared to the WWE, which was still very kind of cookie cutter, interesting characters to say the least. And they were doing those type of things. But in saying that, in defense of the, the WWF, I mean, WCW at this time still had some real bogus characters or interesting storylines. Um, I think, you know, this is the time when uh, uh, Glacier, Glacier was, uh, you know, becoming a thing, you know, the Mortal Kombat thing, Mortis, uh, Raph, which he, in today's standards, very dated and kind of even in 96 was uh, looking a bit dated. So while... You we know, had Seven as well around this time as well, yeah. didn't we? We had, uh, yeah, in between gold dust um, outings, we had Seven as well, which was never great. The only <laughs> other thing I would mention as a... Jeez, uh, that was grim that time. The only other thing that I would mention as, as being fantastic, and it's something that I go back and watch at least once every five or six months or so, and I encourage uh, our listeners to, to look this up on YouTube. June 16, 1997, I think it was in the run-up to the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view that year. Um, it, the, the scene that was set, it's the United Center in Chicago, home of the Chicago Bulls. You've got Dennis Rodman, or Denise Rodman, as he's referred to in commentary, um, cracking out of the limo, flanked by Hogan, Bischoff, Savage, the Outsiders, kids there, um, and they're all at their cigars, and they're coming up through the backstage. And this is the opening shot of the program, mind you. You just get a smooth shot of them pulling up, going through the curtain, past Gorilla, out onto the stage, the fireworks going off, Hogan's doing the air guitar, you've got Voodoo Child pumping through the speakers. I mean, 
if that does not say WCW at its peak, I don't know what else does. Fantastic memories. Absolutely. And we've sort of already touched on it, but what's the legacy of the NWA sort of moving forward with wrestling? I think it forced uh, Vince McMahon and the WWE to lift their game. Um, I think it forced the WWE to never take anything for granted. Um, And I think it also encouraged talent to step out of their comfort zone. Um, I think the legacy of the NWO is to add a bit of yourself into your character. You know, Steve Austin says it all the time. The best characters are the individual with the volume turned way up. And I think the characters that we saw with Hogan, Nash and Hall um, were just themselves with the volume turned way up. And that that's what makes the best television. That's what makes the best characters is when you look at them and you go, I know this is a wrestling show, but that wasn't meant to happen, right? And I think mm. when you have people playing characters that toe, walk that line between wrestling and reality, boy, does it make for entertaining view, uh, viewing. And I think they... They definitely left um, wrestling overall in a better place than uh, when they found it. Uh, depending who you're talking to, I don't know if uh, would Jim Cornette necessarily uh, agree with those uh, sentiments, but I, I completely agree, Adam. Uh, Adam Masters, wrestling journal here in the land down under. Greatly appreciate you taking the time as we uh, talk about the NWO on the 25th anniversary of uh, the NWO being a thing. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I guess, do we do we finish this with another two sweet or what's, how, how would we uh, do that? How, how do we conclude oh, this? I, I think I think we should. I think um, my, my hand is seizing up again. Shall we? How, how's Jules doing? There we go. Whoa, whoa. There we go. That's for life. <laughs> for life. And too sweet. <laughs> That's for yeah, life. It, it was too, yeah, too sweet. Yeah, no, but yeah, um, I think uh, Conan made fun of Hogan like in the shoot interview where Hogan would be like, for life. Because you, know, you have to say, for life. For life. I think if you can find that on uh, YouTube somewhere, it's uh, quite a funny listen. But uh, too sweet for life. I mean, that was really that was really most of the uh, catchphrases there. And I guess another thing that we have to touch on just with the obviously uh, the music, the NWO music, which was samples of uh, Jimi Hendrix and uh, obviously Hogan using Voodoo Child and things like that. And I think oh, like some Craig Leathers or some of the production people doing the voiceover the, parts, the rock house just, theme as well. The rock house, yeah. It just again, what. Well, Chef's kiss all round. Adam Masters, thank you very much. Until next time, this has been WCW Gold, all part of the Wrestling Source Bottle Network. I'm your host, Joel Brown, and we'll chat next time.